Good morning. My name is David White. I get to be the pastor of Springton Lake Presbyterian Church. We're going through a series on Malachi. Uh, we're in chapter 3, verses 6 to 12 today. That is page 802 if you're using the Pew Bible. I'm going to be Captain Obvious for a moment here. The future is uncertain. Nobody knows that better than the 49ers. <laughs> so, what do you do with the uncertainty of the future that we're so small and have such an inability to control what's coming? A movie came out many years ago called Grand Canyon. And in it, Danny Glover plays a tow truck driver, and at one point he picks up this guy that's in a bad situation, and they end up having a conversation, and he shares about going to the Grand Canyon, visiting it, and he says this, hey, do you know what I felt like when I was at the Grand Canyon? I felt like the tiny gnat that lands on the rump of the cow that it's chewing its cud by the side of the highway that you drive by going 70 miles an hour. Really, really, really small. And in the midst of a world where there's so much uncertainty, that can be a terrifying thought that you are so small and that you have no control over what's coming. Uh, but our passage today shows you that although that can feel really scary, it is actually a blessing to be aware of your finitude. If you can see that there is one who is greater, who is good, who is in control of all things. If you're here and you're visiting with us this morning, particularly if you're someone that is investigating the Christian faith, we're really glad that you've come out this morning. And I just want to warn you, uh, this passage talks about money. <laughs> That's hard. Um, the church, I think, historically has gotten a bad rap for talking too much about money, um, but what I want you to see in this passage, that it really isn't about money. It's about God exposing false hopes, false places that we go for security, places that actually don't keep you safe, and communicates his desire to be the provider for you, to be the one who's watching out for you, who's meeting all of your needs. Um, in our sane moments, we realize that we are that tiny little creature in an uncertain world. And in light of that, all of us are looking for security and comfort, a refuge somewhere. So we've been going through the book of Malachi, as I said. Let me just throw up again this timeline of ancient Israel so you see where we are in history. Uh, Malachi was written during a period of disillusionment. The people had been judged and cast out of the promised land. Now they've come back. They've been in the promised land again for a number of decades. They've rebuilt the temple. Uh, they've reengaged in worship. But they feel like God has let them down because things are not going as they expected that they would go. They feel that he's let them down and he can't trust them. And so Malachi is a series of disputes with the people arguing with God. 
We are on dispute number five, so please rise and we will uh, read from God's word. Follow along if you are able from Matthew 6, uh, I'm sorry, Malachi 3, verses 6 to 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of God. Please be seated. I've included a short outline for you in in the bulletin. We're going to look at three points this morning. The two constants that this passage talks about, the invitation to return that it gives to Israel and all of us, and then finally the generosity of God. You'll also notice that I've included some discussion questions. Please take advantage of having conversations uh, with one another, maybe during the soup lunch, on your way home, Uh, It's really important that we are intentional to apply truth that we hear. So the passage opens up talking about two constants. First, it describes God's faithfulness. So if you look at verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. And so you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. This is echoing the language from the previous section that Jake did a great job preaching on last week, that God refines his people like a precious metal. How does refining work? You need to heat the metal until it's in a molten state. You make it so hot that any of the impurities that are in there are either burned away completely or they rise to the surface so you can scrape them off. The impurities are consumed. God describes himself in both the Old Testament and the New Testament as a consuming fire. So I'm just going to put up a couple scriptures there for you to look at. We're not going to read through them. But you'll notice in both of them, from Deuteronomy and Hebrews, it tells us God is a consuming fire. So why is it that the people are not consumed? despite their faithlessness, because God is faithful. Look at the passage. It says in verse 7, from the days of your father. It's saying, this goes back to the very beginning. You've always been like this. You have always turned away from me. You've been consistent in your rebellion. Um, But he is faithful. So how does this work? I want to take you to the beginning very briefly here so that you can understand what is in view. Uh, Genesis 15 records Abraham 
and God making a covenant together. So God tells Abraham, I want you to take a three-year-old heifer and a she-goat and a ram, a turtle dove and a pigeon and sacrifice them. And those three larger animals you can see depicted in this woodcut are supposed to be cut in half and, and separated. And so these animals are split and it makes a path. And what they were doing was enacting something that was done in the ancient Near East. It's called a suzerain vassal treaty. And what happened is if a greater king conquered a lesser tribal king, they would go through this ritual. The lesser tribal king, his life was spared. And so he would swear fealty to the conquering king. He would say, I promise to be faithful to you and give tribute or whatever the conditions of the covenant were, and he would pass through the pieces of these animals. So he would be taking a curse on himself saying, may I become like these animals ripped apart if I don't keep my promise to you. So this is what God has Abraham act out. Now, as I've described it, who do you think would walk through the pieces? Should have been Abraham, right? God's making promises, and, and Abraham would be swearing fealty to him. But instead, God makes the promises, and then God passes through the pieces. The passage says that, that this dread, dread darkness came upon them. It's a picture of judgment from the Old Testament. The darkness comes, and in that darkness... Abraham has a vision of a torch and a fire pot. Some commentators say this is a picture of the pre-incarnate Christ walking through the pieces. The only thing you could see was the light that he was holding, the torch and the fire pot. God taking the curse of the covenant on himself. And that's what we see fulfilled in Jesus. He took the curse on himself. God knows that we are wayward. And so he fulfilled both making the promise and taking the curse. And that's why the people aren't consumed, as, as Jake talked about last week, because Jesus passed through that fire for us. We got a beautiful picture of this reality uh, from the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. I'll just put this passage up on the screen. Why, why is it tongues of fire that come and rest on, on the apostles' heads? Some of you have probably read this passage. Um, it's the fire of judgment that comes, the God that's a consuming fire. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit coming and filling the apostles, and they're not consumed. The fire comes, and the apostles are not consumed because all of their dross has already been consumed, and they've been refined in who Jesus is and what he's done. Now, the other constant, so that's God's faithfulness. The other constant we see in our passage is the faithlessness of Israel. As I said at the beginning, he's recounting their history of disobedience. In fact, what you see in verse 7 there, you've turned aside from my statutes and not kept them. This is an Old Testament formula uh, for what disobedience and rebellion against God looks like, turning away from what he's asked them to do. Again, it's, it's from the time of their fathers. He's saying it's from the very beginning. It's also significant that he says, O children of Jacob. Some of you might remember this from the first week of this series where we talked about Jacob. Jacob um, in Hebrew, is, is, it's a little bit of a, it's like a, a, um, 
a word that refers to someone who grasps the heel. Uh, And so you might remember when Jacob was born, he was holding Esau's heel coming out. But it also means, as a Hebrew idiom, it means one who's a cheater and a swindler. And so it's intentional here where God is saying, you're children of Jacob. You know, you're just like your father. He was a cheat and a swindler, and you are robbing me. And then look at, look at what else he says here. This is significant um, when he says in, in verse 9, the whole nation of you. The Hebrew there for nation is goy. That's what's used of the pagan nations. Maybe you've heard of the goyim. He's saying, you are just like the pagan nations. Turning away from me, robbing me. Um, He's pointing out the faithlessness of his people. And that's why he gives them an invitation to return. But as we've seen throughout Malachi, there is a profound blindness to what's really going on, their true spiritual state. Uh, So they're incredulous, right? And and this is the basis of the dispute when he invites them to return. And they're saying in in verse 7, how shall we return? Um, How are we robbing you? What are they saying? They, They are indignant that he invites them to return because they're basically saying, we're not the ones who moved. You're failing us. What have you done for me lately? God. He has been repeatedly through this book saying, I love you, I've been faithful to you, and they're like, yeah, I'm not seeing it, I'm not feeling it, look at my circumstances. The Hebrew word for return is shuv. It has in view turning 180 degrees and going back in a different direction. Um, It's often used for repentance. And so he's telling them, how do you return? What are you doing with your money? What are you doing with your stuff? It was a requirement in the Old Testament that the people should give a tithe. That's 10% of what their land produced. And so look at this passage from Leviticus. It says, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. So they were supposed to take 10% of what they grew and bring it to the temple and donate it to the temple. Uh, In addition to that, it says, you'll have noticed it says, tithes and offerings Uh, They were supposed to make, or tithes and contributions rather, in verse 8, they were supposed to make additional offerings with that, and those things could be, it could be additional produce, or it could be building materials, it could be valuables like gold, silver, or precious stones. They were expected to go above and beyond with that and with some additional things. Uh, You should know with the tithe, part of it was to bless them. They brought a tithe, and they actually were able to partake of some of what they brought. Come and feast in my presence. In fact, in, in uh, the law, it says, you know what? If you live too far away to bring all your, all your produce, turn it into money, bring that. And you know what? Once you get to Jerusalem, spend it on whatever you want, whatever looks good to you. Buy it and enjoy it and feast. And, of course, give to the temple as well. Um, he's saying what you do 
with your produce, or in our situation, what you do with your money, is a demonstration of being in a right relationship with me. Specifically in this context, he's saying, I want you to give the tithes and contributions that I've commanded. It's in my law. I've told you to do this. And of course, you know, the priest could not go around and audit what everybody's land is producing, right? It really was kind of you had to be honest. It was the honor system. This is how much you, you grew. I want you to give this much. Um, they couldn't really keep up with all of that. And so it says four times uh, in, this, in these just couple of verses here that, that they are robbing God. Um, how can we rob God? That's one of their questions, right? He owns everything already, but he shared a portion with us. And he's saying, will you acknowledge that? Will you return some of what is mine? Now, I think it's important to realize that this was happening on one level because the people were living in fear. They were small little creatures in an uncertain world. They didn't know what the future held. So they're living in fear. We have to do a little bit of work here because I suspect most of us have stocked refrigerators at home. There's probably some buffalo chicken dip in there. (laughs) We have stocked refrigerators. Many of us are blessed to not live paycheck to paycheck. We have a little bit of a cushion in our finances. We're talking about people who were subsistence farmers. All they had was what they were producing. They didn't have a lot of cushion. They didn't have a significant margin to work with here. That meant giving to the temple felt like taking food out of their children's mouths or maybe sacrificing what they really needed for seed for the next season. So I want us to have some level of sensitivity of what God is asking here from them. Um, He's saying, will you trust me? And he's asking us the same question. Will you trust me? I remember hearing an economist a number of years ago who had done a study, and he did it across the socioeconomic spectrum. So he was talking to people who were just um, working for minimum wage all the way to people who were extremely wealthy and, and talking about their income And he basically boiled it down to, you know what, everybody, whether they're making like 25 grand or they're making half a million dollars a year, everybody feels they need about 15% more. (laughs) You're just a little under where you need to be. You need more money than you have. Um, So all of us are living with that. We all have some level of fear and insecurity about how we're doing financially. And God is speaking into that, saying, will you trust me? Do you believe that I'm going to provide for you, or are you trying to control things yourself? And so I want to ask you, Springton Lake, in what ways does money represent security for you? How are you tempted to hold on tightly because you're afraid to be vulnerable? God is making clear that giving is relational. 
our giving reflects whether or not we trust him, whether or not we believe he's going to provide. And the reality is I've, I've read um, studies years ago about giving. American Christians tend to fall way short of a tithe. The average in a study I read years ago was the, the average American Christian gives 2 to 3% of what they make. In fact, I, I read a report by one person who, who did the math and said, you know what, if, if American Christians started tithing, we'd be able to take care of world hunger. We'd be able to take care of clean water around the world. Uh, we'd have even more money because we could fire all of, all of our evangelism pastors. We wouldn't need them anymore. because the world would see us loving in Jesus' name and providing for those who are in need, which he actually called us to do. Um, There's a lot more to say there that I probably need to say for another sermon. But I do want to ask you, what does your charitable giving reveal about your relationship with God, your level of trust with him? And I want to take a moment um, to particularly address people who aren't living paycheck to paycheck. So I know a number, a number of you are. If you're not living paycheck to paycheck, what does your charitable giving say when you have cushion? Um, I think for many of us, it reveals just how deeply the love of money hook has been set. So what is a tithe for us now? Should it be 10% off our gross, 10% off our net? Is 10% even still a thing we need to worry about? Let me just put up a couple passages for you that I think are relevant. This is from 1 Corinthians 16. Um, My quick answer would be, the New Testament does not give you a number as conveniently as the Old Testament did. But it says important things. Look at this passage from 1 Corinthians 16. On the first day of every week, each of you should put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So there'll be no collecting when I come. The NIV renders that as he may prosper as in keeping with your income. In other words, depending on how much you make, you should be thinking about how much you are putting aside. Um, 2 Corinthians 9 is also really important here. I'm just going to read a portion of this. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So what are these two passages kind of holding them together? There's no mandatory tithe. It's it's in keeping with your income. Um, Does God want us to be vulnerable for him? Yes. He also doesn't want us to be foolish. There are wisdom issues here. I realize that. There are people, by the way, uh, I know who are much more financially savvy than me in this congregation that can help you figure that out if you'd like to talk further. Uh, I'll volunteer them now. <laughs> There's no mandatory tithe, but we do need to think about how, how much we can give. Um, and our heart matters. God wants a cheerful giver. He wants you rejoicing because of who he is and what he's done, that it is our pleasure and delight to give um, because it reflects who we are relationally. Think about it like this. <laughs> Valentine's Day is coming. If you give your spouse or your good friend or your child an extravagant birthday gift, 
But when you hand it to them, you look like this kid. And you let them know exactly how much it set you back. How's that going to do for your relationship? It's not going to deepen your relationship. It's going to be detrimental to your relationship. A good gift deepens your relationship only when it's given with a cheerful heart. If we're honest, all of us have what one commentator referred to as a keeping problem. We hold tight to what we have instead of freely giving. I had the blessing of working for almost 20 years as a support-raising missionary and being, uh, surviving on the generosity of God's people, um, which is humbling and informative. One of my friends who became one of my first supporters and supported me for almost 20 years, had an ama- I had an amazing conversation with him the first time I called him for support. He said, you know, my wife and I, a number of years ago, stopped asking the question, how much should we give? And we started asking, how much should we keep? It's a completely different question um, and an important one because all of us do have a keeping problem. The commentator said that we should see 10% more as a floor than a ceiling. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking of the end of Schindler's List, and some of you may remember this, this movie. It's, it's a few decades old now, I think, but um, Oscar Schindler in Germany, Nazi Germany, owns a factory and works to protect Jews. And at the end of the film, he has this moment of realizing as much as he's done, he could have done more. This car could have saved 10 more lives. This gold Nazi pin I'm wearing could have saved one more life. The realization how much money he foolishly wasted as people were being sent off to die in the gas chambers. His eyes were fully opened. He had a perspective on what really mattered how much more he could have done. Over the next couple weeks, we're going to be looking because Malachi ends up talking about a day that is coming, a day in which all of us, like Oscar Schindler in that scene, will have perfect clarity on how much more we could have done for the things that really matter. But there's more here. Because the idea, ultimately, is that God would free us now from the enslaving power of money because we all have this keeping problem. He wants us to be free to give things away so that they don't have the power over us that they have right now. I think all of us need accountability on this. Um, A number of years ago, I was... Uh, I, so I worked at this ministry, and for those of you who don't know, it was helping people overcome struggles with sexual sin. And so I remember one particular support group where I was sitting around with a group of men who had shared the most deep, personal, shameful thing of their lives with each other. They knew the worst things about themselves. 
one of my volunteer leaders was part of a house church. And he announced to the group one week, my house church decided we're all going to bring in our budgets. There's 10 or 12 families involved in this house church. We're all going to bring in our budgets and open the books and show each other how we spend our money. And here's a group of men who had shared all these deep personal things about themselves. They whoa, let's not get crazy here. <laughs> they were more worried about being honest with their money than with their sexuality. It's pretty telling, I think. In our passage, God is pointing to an irony. They're worried about their future. They are being self-protective with their produce. I don't think I can afford to give this away. What's going to happen to my family? What's going to happen to my crops next year? But the reality is they are already suffering consequences. Look at verse 9. You are cursed with a curse, he tells them. And then look down at verse 11. I will rebuke the devourer for you. Your vine shall not fail to bear. They're dealing with problems. They have agricultural problems. He's saying, you're so worried about protecting yourself. Well, the devourer is already devouring. Your vines already aren't bearing. And don't you know, I am the one in control of these things. You're worried about your diminished produce, but it's already happening. God is allowing them to already begin experiencing consequences because of their disobedience in this area of life. He's saying, I can protect you from these things. Now, what it's pointing to, I want to be, be careful to nuance this, okay? He's pointing to the reality of the vertical and the horizontal, this does not mean if you are going through trials right now that you are under judgment for some kind of disobedience. It may. That's, that's, a, that's a, a need for spiritual discernment. Uh, myself or the elders would be happy to talk with you if there's situations in your life like that. What he's pointing to is trials will always reveal what you worship. They will always reveal what you worship. What's happening down here, circumstantially in your life, is going to reveal, do you worship him or do you worship something else? That's what he is pointing, putting his finger on here. Um, so let me ask you, what do you cling to when you are feeling the squeeze? Israel was holding more tightly to their crops in the midst of locusts coming or drought or whatever the specific situation was they were facing. And I just want to challenge you that we can be similarly under a curse. When we withhold because we think money is going to bring security or maybe it's identity, I can buy more stuff and then I can be at this cool kid status with what I drive or wear or where I live. Um, we are hoping to find life in our money and possessions. But the result is a cursed life where you're not content, where you don't have joy, um, where you are not satisfied. I suspect you have heard this well-worn quote before from America's first billionaire. 
He was asked by a reporter, how much money's enough? Just a little bit more. If you took what Rockefeller was worth at the turn of the 21st century and adjusted for inflation, $410 billion. $410 billion was not enough. Why? Because you are created for a relationship with an infinite God. Your desires are not insatiable. They just need an infinite object. If you put them to anything else, you allow your desires to run to anything else besides him, you will end up with a little bit more. I need more, I need more, I need more. It could be money, it could be chasing success, it could be leisure and entertainment, it could be sexual things, it could be drugs and alcohol. Whatever you are going to where you think you're going to find life, it will never satisfy you because you will only be satisfied in him, as St. Augustine said. What is he saying to you? I love this, this verse from Hebrews 13. Mike Matika on our, our prayer call pointed me to this. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he, ha he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He wants you to know his presence with you. He's saying, don't hope in all these other things. I want to give you myself. The one who's ruling over all things. Don't you think I can take care of your little life? Don't you think I can take care of your small needs? Do we trust him? Because that's what the passage is pointing us to. Let me wrap up with this. It's, it's about the generosity of God. And so he invites them. Uh, if, if you look in, um, in verse 10, put me to the test. He says, now some of you might remember when Jesus was uh, faced temptation in the desert, he quoted Deuteronomy 16, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. Two different Hebrew words, okay? The one that, that is in Deuteronomy is referring more towards like temptation or trying. It's, com it's coming from a place of cynical unbelief. You show me, okay? This test is, let's think about this. Let's examine this together. Will you take this step of obedience? Will you step out in faith and see if I don't keep my promise to you? Will you trust me? He's inviting all of us who have weak and struggling faith to step out in boldness, to make ourselves vulnerable, to give away what we think we need to hold on to for ourselves and saying, see if I won't bless you. Test me. Because that's what is, is looking at is outpoured blessing. He's saying, I'm going to pour out blessing until all your need is removed. The fact that most of us don't have real needs is probably something we should talk about at some point. Uh, we don't really have time to go into that today because that's actually what he's talking about. You know, most of us don't want to give because there's, there's frivolities we don't want to lose. If we tithe, most of us would not go hungry or lose our place to live. 
think we need to wrestle with that one. He wants to pour out blessing until all the need is removed. Um, The image is a sluice gate in a dam that is opened and the water is just pouring out. This little window, uh, uh. yeah, I wanted to go off on this whole thing, Fried, I'm going to rein it in. On on the ancient Near Eastern worldview of how they understood the cosmos, that's too much right now. Um, A window in heaven opened, that's how they felt the flood happened. Okay, a window in heaven opened and all this poured in, that's the picture. The window is open, this blessing is pouring in. How does the blessing pour in? Because there is this vastness behind it. There's a vastness behind it that is infinite, that is pouring through. It's just waiting for that little aperture to open, and it will flood you. So let me end with this. How, how is God, how do you think he's holding out on you? What do you think he's withholding Very important, where are you placing your trust? What are you looking to as a source of life or security instead of coming to the one who's the giver of life? You need to see this, that because of Jesus, we are in a very different place than Israel in the time of Malachi. Jesus set aside his glory to enter this world He emptied himself. He stripped himself down. He made himself vulnerable so that you and I can be secure. I love how it puts it in 2 Corinthians 8. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by by his poverty you might become rich. He wants you to know peace and joy, and contentment. He wants you to experience the blessings in this life. He gives good gifts. He wants you to delight in them. The problem is when you make the gifts a God. He wants you to revel in the good gifts that he's given. Um, He made himself poor. He is faithful. We're not consumed because he paid the cost for us, as we talked about earlier. How do you know how much your relationship with someone means to them? Gift giving is one factor, right? It's not the only factor, but it is one factor. God didn't show his love and care for humanity by giving you a $20 Amazon gift card. (laughs) You know, that gift you get from that person, like, here you go. He gave what was most precious to him. He gave what was most precious, what he valued above anything else. Um, there is no greater invitation to rest in his, than in his care and provision if you can see the wonder of his generosity, which is why I love this, this verse from Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him Graciously give us all things. He's saying, don't hope in these things that are unstable, that don't satisfy you anyway. Come to me. I have poured out blessing ready for you. Look to the one who loves you, 
who is in control of all things, finite little creatures that we are, with an uncertain future, with a world that is scary. He wants to free you to give, free you from the things that you cling to because you see his generosity, his love, his blessing for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness toward us. We thank you for the love that you've shown us in Christ. Would you help us, God? Would you convict us, uh, Holy Spirit, of the things that we're clinging to? Would you show us the things right now that we go to for life instead of coming to you? And would you help us, God, to see the love you have poured out for us in Christ, that we would trust you, that we would not be scared of being vulnerable, that we would see that Jesus was made vulnerable so we could be secure. We pray in his name. Amen.